For the first time in nine years, Dad had asked me what living with the secret of his HIV status had been like, except he hadn't actually asked me to tell him in a way that would allow us to talk about it. He'd told me to write it down for him to read. I couldn't stop imagining him sitting alone at his own desk, the weight of my words too heavy in his hands. What would that do to him? Welcome to Daring to Tell. This is the podcast where writers read their true stories, either memoir chapters or unpublished manuscripts or personal essays, and then we talk about it. I am Michelle Rado. Nothing's gonna make me brave. Nothing's gonna make me brave. Nothing's gonna make me brave except doing what makes me scared. My husband, Phil Rado, is a musician and a songwriter. That song, Make Me Brave, is one of his, which existed before this podcast, by the way. He allowed me to use it for my theme song, which I am very grateful for. And I am so impressed with the ability to write songs. It seems like an entirely different art form to me. Songs call out to him and make their way through his fingers to guitar strings or piano keys. So between his music and my writing, we're always looking for inspiration on the creative process. So when I saw that the singer-songwriter Mary Gaucher a songwriter he loves, was doing a talk about songwriting, I jumped at the chance and bought us a virtual ticket. If Is it a virtual ticket or a ticket to a virtual event? Well, anyways, we were at home and the event was on Zoom. And that is where Mary Gaucher was. And if it wasn't for him, I don't think I would have necessarily have thought that a talk on songwriting would be all that applicable for me. But was it ever, especially since it turned out to be about the healing power of songwriting, or I could condense that to simply say the healing power of writing. Mary Gaucher is amazing. If you don't already know this, she drew a clear and direct line through the long, slow process of vulnerability and courage through connection and seeing ourselves in the stories of others, which leads to empathy and resonance, and at last landed at a word that I have not yet been able to articulate in exploring the writing process, and that is alchemy, making something positive from our pain. That's what I realized I'm always on the hunt for, the alchemy makers, looking to see ourselves in the transformational work of another. Today, we are hearing from another writer who is very well versed in both seeking out her own role models and courage and vulnerability and putting in the very slow, very brave work of writing as well, Melanie Brooks. She interviewed writer after writer after writer and ended up publishing a book about the process of working up the courage to write called Writing Hard Stories. In other words, she had to write a book 
in order to work up her courage to write the brave story she had to tell. And I am so honored that today she will read from that manuscript that is her bit of alchemy. So one more quick thing before we get to the conversation. I hope you will stick with us till the end because I am trying something a little different this month, a special offer for those of you who may live in Maine. So stick with us till the end of the episode. And now here is Melanie Brooks. Welcome to Daring to Tell. I am really excited to have you with me today. Same here, Michelle. I'm very excited to be with you and to talk to you about all of this important stuff. It is. And um, so I'll orient our listener um, a little bit. So I met Melanie um, when I took a class with the Maine Writers and Publishers Alliance. I believe the class was called Writing Hard Stories. Is that? I think it was called Writing Tough, tough Stories. Story. That's right. You yes. know, it's funny. I had a, I had tough in one place and then hard stories in the other. But I was immediately drawn to that title of the class. And it was a fantastic class when we talked about exactly what it is we're going to talk about today, which is memoir and writing about the difficult things that happen in, in our lives and processing them and turning them eventually into art and I think hopefully healing. So today, what I'm very excited about, usually on Daring to Tell, we have someone reading from their either memoir or essay or manuscript. Today, Melanie, we get a twofer with you because (laughs) not only are you sharing your very, very beautiful and brave manuscript today, but you also have a book that you have written called Writing Hard Stories. So I was, before we dive into that a little bit, because I have a few questions about the book. Sure. Maybe if you want to just start by telling us what your writing story is. How did you start writing at all? So I started writing creatively when I was doing my undergraduate work in college and I I took an advanced creative writing class and at that time really enjoyed the class, had a wonderful, amazing instructor Mm -hmm. at the time and, you know, thought for a while about getting an MFA degree immediately following my undergrad But then I, you know, life circumstance kind of got in the way and I ended up deciding I wanted to pursue an education degree. And then for a really long time, I taught writing Mm -hmm. and did a little writing of my own on the side. And I also did a program at the University of New Hampshire. And at the time it was called the New Hampshire Writing Institute. Mm -hmm. And I would take these classes in the summer where I would get to do a little bit of writing and it was kind of half writing practice, half writing pedagogy, which eventually led to a degree at UNH in writing and teaching writing. But I was always kind of in the dabbling place of Mm -hmm. writing where I knew I wanted to do more. I knew I wanted to invest my time more intentionally, but family obligations and work obligations kind of seemed to always get in the way. So it was in 2013 that I decided to 
pursue a master's of fine arts in creative writing. And I did it very intentionally with the idea that this will be the time that I focus on the writing that I want to do. And I knew I needed the structure of a program to mm -hmm. be able to do that, but also, you know, the deadlines and the community support as well to be able to do that. So it was kind of a long path <laughs> to get there because, right. you know, I, I started that program probably 20 years after my undergraduate degree. So yeah, even before you got to college, were you a writer in your youngest days or you were a reader? I was definitely a yeah. reader. Yeah. And, you know, I wasn't someone who sat down and journaled all the time. I loved it when I was assigned something to write in a class, but I wasn't somebody who did a lot of putting pen to paper as a young child. Mm. But reading was kind of my escape always. And so it felt, you know, very natural for me to begin the storytelling process because I inhabited stories when I was younger. So that was kind of the place that the writing began, kind of in my reading life. Yeah, I think those two kind of go hand in hand mm -hmm. most of the time. For sure. So knowing a little bit about your manuscript, your, your story that you tell um, and what you're going to read today, I know that when you were in college as an undergrad was when you were dealing with some of the toughest moments of your dad's illness. So all these things are kind of interwoven. So I wonder if maybe you want to first describe a little bit about what your manuscript, what your memoir is about. So sure, have a sure. Sense of that. So the context of my manuscript is that in 1985, when I was 13, my father had a heart attack and underwent a quadruple bypass surgery. And eight months after his surgery, it was discovered that the blood transfusion he received during his surgery was tainted with HIV. And he ended up testing HIV positive as a result. At the time, we were living in Canada, and it was 1985, so the cultural context around HIV-AIDS was very different from our modern cultural context. And so, you know, there was a lot of unknowns. My father was a, a surgeon, and he was kind of at the pinnacle of the medical profession, and he knew very little about the disease and what the prognosis was besides you know, certain death. And so there was a also a lot of stigma and intolerance mm -hmm. about it and a lot of fear surrounding the disease. And so he made the decision that he was going to keep his illness a secret. And it was a decision that we all had to kind of buy into, not knowing, of course, that it was going to be an extended secret. He anticipated, like everyone else he was seeing who was infected with HIV, that he would die within months, if not, you know, that year. But he ended up living another 10 years with the disease. And for most of that 10-year period, we kept it a secret. And so that was from the time I was 13 until I was 23. So kind of this very fundamental developmental period in my life where there was this very dark shadow of a secret kind of under the surface for us. Yeah, and 
that's a lot to absorb. <laughs> it is. I mean, that is, it, it's just so huge, and any one of those things would be big on its own. But as you say, especially over this time in your life when it's very pivotal to your development, and it's also about feeling like we fit in with other people and so many different things I know were going on under the surface of that silence that was sort of your family code of of how to deal with things. Right, Um, right. So getting back to the writing and you're in college, Mm -hmm. your dad is in the later stages of his illness at that point? He was. So I I graduated from my undergraduate degree in 1993, and my father died in 1995. So in many ways, we were fortunate that despite living for maybe, I guess it was about five years in what was then known as kind of the full-blown AIDS stage, the period of active infection for him was pretty much in those last two years Mm -hmm. of his life. So in your undergrad and sort of deciding you took that creative writing class, I guess I'm wondering, was writing and what you were experiencing, were they intermingling at that point? Not at all. No, I was not touching. I was not touching that story in any way because, you know, when you're living with a secret like that and it's got kind of that dangerous feel to it because, you know, there was danger for us at that time in Canada. They were talking about quarantining AIDS victims and their families. And, um, you know, so there was there was a lot of risk involved. And I actually grew up in an evangelical Christian community. And my undergraduate degree was actually at an evangelical Christian college. And so even in that environment, Mm. it felt even more dangerous because a lot of the stigma and intolerance was perpetuated by the church at that time. So short answer, no, I wasn't writing about it at all. I find it so interesting. And I obviously love your story for a variety of reasons. But I think that a lot of them are reflected in some of my own experience, which also includes a very religious upbringing, mm-hmm. not evangelical, but I grew up as a Christian scientist. And in reading the faith part of your story, there was clearly a lot of comfort and strength that you drew from your faith. Right. Yeah. At the time. At the time. <laughs> you know, I know. At right. the time. Yeah. You know, and it's it's interesting because, you know, it, it's hard to separate kind of the family heritage of faith from, you know, kind of the personal investment in yes. the faith. And and yeah. I think for me, the two have separated pretty significantly. Right. Um, but I think in investigating kind of the story and interrogating the roots of the secrecy that my family lived in, Mm -hmm. it was very difficult for me not to blame the evangelical Christian community Mm. for that secrecy. You know, I I mean, to to be frank, I think my father's greatest fear was that people would think he was gay. And, you know, so to have that shadow over kind of my faith experience now makes it a much more kind of complicated picture. Absolutely, absolutely. And I guess that's that's sort of what I'm trying to get at as I 
work through a lot of these big questions because I think one of the big questions I see is a question of faith and looking back at a faith that one once had that, as you say, it's hard to separate yourself from now in hindsight. Um, The other one, I think, is knowing what we know about a disease, a pandemic, dare I suggest, you know, that we've we've been living through not at all the same type of a pandemic, but it's, in fact, a second pandemic that we, many people have lived through with coronavirus. But with AIDS, when so much is unknown, I think it is really hard to remember back to the emotion and the time of what it was like when we didn't have a lot of the answers that we currently have. Right. That's which I see is kind of similar as the faith thing. Like I grew up in a Christian science church. I very much tried with all my might to believe and to adhere to what the faith was. And similarly, I look back and it's complicated and I wonder did I have shreds of doubt from my earliest days? Did I right. always try and seek comfort in it or find some kind of solace? I mean, that part of it I find a little different. I feel like Christian science was a very isolating religion because there's so mm-hmm. few people that were. Right. What I see through your story was community and camaraderie, at least. Even, But I can also see how that's really scary when you know you have this giant secret that you right. don't want to Because I was going to, to say, yeah. you know, there was community and camaraderie on the exterior, but we weren't inviting anybody into our experience. Right. And particularly people from the church community were not invited into our experience. And, you know, there's a sadness in me about that a little bit, because after my father died, there was a great outpouring of support for our family from long-term friends and long-term acquaintances. Mm -hmm. And it made me wonder, did we need to be as frightened as we were, Mm. you know, or did my father need to be as frightened as he was? What would have happened had he, you know, revealed his illness sooner? Would we have been surrounded by that support then? But those are questions that are unanswerable at this stage. Right. And we're a huge risk at the time. Right. I mean, weighing that risk is also part of the Right. And having med- read the manuscript, you know that, you know, my father did make a few efforts to receive some support and care from the church community. And he was let down right. in pretty significant ways, which kind of set the stage for the rest of the story. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it didn't yeah. give him any reason to want to. <laughs> right. Exactly. Up. Yeah. You know, his his worst fears kind of came true with people turning their backs on him. So, yeah. 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 So thinking about all of that, when did you decide to write about your dad and how did you come to that decision? The first time I ever wrote anything about my dad's illness was in one of these summer institutes at the University of New Hampshire. And that would have been probably somewhere around you know, 2005, 2006, maybe. Right. That was 10 years after he died then, right? Yes. Time-wise. Yep. Time okay, yes. sorry. Continue. Yes. 
you know, and I look back at the piece of writing that I did then that felt so vulnerable and so exposing, and yet it was so benign in some ways, you know, I was still just really skirting around the truth of the story. I think I was still kind of living in this narrative that I had kind of created for myself of what the story was and how I had coped with the story, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it was very sanitized, I think, would be a good way to say it. Well, and I do, I also relate to that too, because I think when we do start looking at the things that we're afraid of, I don't know about you, but I was afraid about thinking a lot of things first, you know, before I even got to thinking about them and feeling them and then the idea of writing them down and then the idea of like even sharing that with anyone else. Each one of those is their own layers that needs its own kind of brave step forward. Right. And it's interesting because even though my parents had told their story and the, you know, my father, when my father died, it wasn't a secret that he had HIV AIDS, but I was removed from that kind of big reveal, you know, and, and so I, I had got married, I was living away. And so it still felt like that boundary of what I was allowed to talk about was there for me, despite their decision to go public with their story. So that was a difficult journey to navigate, you know, what am I allowed to talk about? And am I violating anything? And that decision, like, I think I felt very silenced by just the concept of the secret, you know? Yeah, yeah. And that's true, because I think so much of it is what each one of our own perceptions about what's going on even. So we're going to hear about that book in the section that you're going to read for us today. But one more, maybe at least one more question sure, <laughs> before sure. we get there. So the other book that you've already written is out there for anyone who is looking for advice and fortitude and you know inspiration in writing hard stories called Writing Hard Stories. <laughs> and walk me through the book, how the book came into be, because you were in the midst of writing your manuscript when you wrote this book. Right. So as you just mentioned a few minutes ago, you know, sanitizing the story is also a self-protective measure, right? Mm -hmm. To not have to really dive into the experience, because especially if you're writing memoir, when you begin to kind of peel back the layers of memory, you bring yourself back Mm -hmm. to those experiences and you bring yourself back to those particular instances of trauma. And, you know, a lot of people Mm -hmm. kind of talk about it as being re-traumatized. I think Mm -hmm. for me, because at the time, it was just kind of living the experience without even acknowledging the experience, it almost felt like when I began to write about it in earnest, I was being traumatized for the first time, Wow! you know, and and so fast forward to my MFA program where I'm starting to do this work of diving into this story. And I was very surprised by the 
emotional trauma that mm. I experienced in writing, in kind of wow. beginning to write this story. And I, at that time, I thought, you know, I was almost 20 years removed from my father's death. Mm -hmm. So that would have been 30 years removed from, you know, the whole experience itself. And, right. and so, you know, I kind of felt like I know what happened. I understand it. I'm ready. And then I kind of began writing and realized I didn't know anything, you know. <laughs> and, and so I realized I was unprepared for that emotional toll of the writing. Yeah. And I wanted to find out if that was just me or if that was a common experience for right, people. Right. And I began kind of exploring, you know, I, I kind of looked to interviews initially, like, you know, I just read this memoir where this woman writes about her son dying. I wonder what was that like for her to write about it. And mm -hmm. I would read these interviews and nobody was asking the question that I wanted asked. Mm. And so when I started interviewing the writers that I interviewed for writing hard stories, it was not with the intent of writing a book. It was a very selfish, self-motivated journey to get the answers I needed to maybe help me keep going. And so I, I kind of set out to talk to these writers and ask them about the psychological experience of writing their hard stories. And what that journey was like for them and also what it felt to be on the other side of it and have have written those yeah. stories. And so it again, it began as a very kind of selfishly motivated project. It actually began, I was in my MFA and I had to do, they called it the third semester project. And it either had to be some kind of analytical piece or there were different choices of things that we had to do. And so I thought I would write an article about this kind of psychological story right. of writing traumatic experiences. And I started interviewing these writers. And what I realized was each of these experiences of meeting and talking to these amazing writers was so profound for me that it felt very, it, it felt like it was doing it a disservice to try to reduce them to quotes in an article. Mm. And so I began writing these profiles of these interviews uh, that I did. And yeah. then I, you know, and I started realizing these could be chapters to a book. And I really recognized that what they had told me very personally about their experiences in connection to my own writing was something that so many other writers could benefit from, especially, you know, writers who were beginning that difficult process of digging into past experiences of trauma or difficult stories. So I felt like it wasn't fair for me to keep it all to myself. You know? <laughs> so. And I am so glad you didn't. <laughs> it's you. We don't see each other right now. We're talking right. over uh, the phone, essentially. But <laughs> right, right. Um, I have a huge smile on my face because I just love, as you say, I love hearing it was a selfish endeavor. I was not getting the answers that I needed to these questions, so I was going to ask them. And that is the reason I think why well it's kind of why I started this podcast that's as what I, I was told going you. to say right yes I was like I I keep looking for 
the bravery and the stories in the world that I don't yet feel brave enough to tell. And so when I started reading your book and when I met you in the class, I was like, oh, 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 right. (laughs) There's a a kindred spirit here. And, And it is so important, I think, to see these models of what other people have done and um yeah and to hear them say again and I mean I spoke to 18 writers for writing hard stories and it took all 18 of those interviews to kind of push me forward in my process you know but to kind of continuously hear them say it does get easier as you mm-hmm. move through the process, you will feel differently about this story when you finish writing it than you do now in the midst of it. You know, there will be some relief for you in having brought this story to the page. And, you know, at the time I was so kind of in the early stages of my manuscript that I, I sort of half believed them. Right, know? right. <laughs> but, right. but they were right. There is a transformative process of bringing this difficult work to the page and shaping it and giving it the language that expresses the experience, you know, and, and it's also why I teach classes like the workshop that you took, Mm -hmm. because I recognize, you know, these writers gave this gift to me. I need to do the same. Writers need that companionship. They need people to come alongside them and say, you can do this. And I understand what you're going through. And I understand where you want to be. Yeah, well, and it's such a long, slow, often lonely road. So I think that um, when we can connect in this way, either really having a conversation or even just through the page, that's, we find kinship in those stories. And it really does help us figure out what worked for someone else, what could work for me and Exactly. Universal versus specific, too. Right. And I tell my students all the time, you know, writing is a lonely process, but coping with the difficult emotions that emerge from that writing does not have to be, right? That you can find that companionship to get that support that you need as you're working through that writing process. Yeah. Well, I just love witnessing that companionship that you found through the various mm-hmm. writers in writing hard stories. And when I find something I really love, I have to take it so slowly. It's very <laughs> <laughs> it's like I have to savor each one. So I like I'm still working my way through each one, but each writer also has sort of a different aspect of of something to share about what their story was, which might help you or me or someone else in a in a different way. So Absolutely. Yeah. I always say if somebody had handed me my book at the beginning of this process of this manuscript process, I would I would have been so happy. You know, I, I would have instead of feeling <laughs> right, like such right. an odd man out in the sense of like funny. why is this so hard for me, I would have felt like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to expect, you know. <laughs> That what is, everybody feels. Right, right, right. I love that. I love that. Yeah. So the one other question, and we have a lot of stuff here today, but why do you write? Why do you write, Melanie? I think that's such a lofty question. Yeah, isn't it? yeah that's <laughs> <Has> anybody, it. <laughs> I should turn that around and ask you, Michelle, why do you write? Well, see, um, I'm still working on that one myself. Right. <laughs> I mean, I think... 
you know, I think we all kind of travel through the world and find ways to make sense of our experiences. And, you know, for some people, it's creative avenues, whether it's art or music or writing. Other people have other ways that they do that. But, you know, for me, writing is my way of trying to make sense of the world, whether it's my own world or, you know, the greater things in the world around me. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's the place that I am able to find meaning for myself that helps me kind of navigate the world around me. Terry Tempest Williams has this wonderful little essay called Why I Write, and it's just this litany, this unbelievably long list of reasons and I often read that to my students at the end of a writing class and then have them write it write that answer Mm. you know why why do you write and I'll have to look that one up yeah it's it's a really great little essay and there's a variety of reasons and each day that I approach the page it might be for a different reason Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. well I will also say for for me (laughs) because you kind of asked. <laughs> I, I would um, like to know. A lot of it is, it's, I really feel like I write to know what I think and right. feel. I I feel like I'm a person who has been very um, sort of suspended from my own thoughts and feelings <laughs> quite a right. lot of times. And so it really is this opening up of like, okay, What's going to come out today and giving myself the permission to let it go and see it come down on the page. I've heard fiction writers before. Maybe you and I were even having this discussion before. But Mm -hmm. when fiction writers say, oh, well, today I was writing and my character did this thing I totally didn't expect. And I was like, come on, you're making it up. (laughs) How can your character do something you didn't expect? But when I write about me, I go, oh, my God, I did something. (laughs) I thought something. I realized I thought something that I didn't even know. Exactly. So I kind of get it in that regard. Right. Um, I also think that I... I know this is this, I've heard this said by a number of writers before, but the one I remember very distinctly, I don't know if you know the author, Donald Murray, I think he died in probably 10 years ago, but he used to write columns for the Boston Globe as well as he wrote a number of books. But I remember an interview with him where he said, I write for those who can't. And I think there's something so profound in that as well, that if we have the power to give voice to these experiences, what we're doing is back to what you said, you know, we're kind of giving this universal experience to our readers and we're sharing in their experience through our words. Mm. And I I feel like that sounds awfully lofty, but, (laughs) you know, um, one of the writers I spoke to for writing hard stories was Richard Hoffman. And he talked about that there's a community responsibility as a writer, Mm. that it's not just about you and your story. It's how does your voice and your story fit into the greater community? So I think as memoirists, we, we initially kind of begin that process of writing our stories to try to understand our own experiences. But when we put it into that artistic shape that we hope goes out into the world, it's because we recognize that there might be something in our experience that would connect to somebody else's experience. And the intersection of those stories feels like an important endeavor 
to open that space for people to experience our story and maybe open space to bring their story into the picture. Yes, I think that that makes all the sense in the world. And yeah. So with that, I think let's have you read from your manuscript. This is from close to the middle of your manuscript. And I think we have a few of the relevant pieces of backstory for what we're going to hear today. You grew up in... Ottawa, Ontario. Oh, okay. Throughout my high school years. And then my okay. my parents moved to Nova Scotia when I went to college. And your dad was a surgeon when you were 13, was in 1985, which is when your dad had that bypass surgery. And the faith is an important part of your family, as well as that culture of silence, because your manuscript is called A Hard Silence. And the only other thing we will hear in this chapter, chapters which I absolutely love reading, which take place in a therapist's office. (laughs) Just my absolute favorite thing. Right. (laughs) Yes. So um, Dr. B is your therapist. And so with that, Melanie Brooks, you will read from your manuscript, A Hard Silence, and this chapter is called What We Didn't Say. Great. Thanks, Michelle. What We Didn't Say. Dr. B had drawn the shade on his window to keep the sharp afternoon sun out of my eyes, but slivers of light sneaked through the slats and crisscrossed the space between us. Dust particles danced across their paths. You know what's weird? I asked him, setting my empty Dunkin' Donuts teacup on the floor at my feet and clasping my hands together in my lap. What's weird, he volleyed. So much of the stuff we talk about in here is stuff I wish I could talk to my dad about. I paused, trying to shape the thought in my head into the right language on my tongue. The weird part is that I wouldn't be talking about any of this if he was alive. I wouldn't have to. I couldn't help smiling when I added for unnecessary clarity because of the him being alive part and all. Dr. B smiled too. His eyes crinkled at the corners and dimples dented his cheeks. I get it, he said. It makes sense that you'd want to connect with him about these painful emotions. His face grew serious again. That's one of the biggest tragedies in your whole story for me. What part? that you didn't feel like you could talk about the pain of your experience when your dad was alive, with either your dad or your mom. We'd covered this territory before, more than once. It was a hard reality for me to face, the residual damage inflicted by my family's culture of silence during the 10 years my dad was sick, in the 19 years after. Dr. B wanted me to admit that I was angry about it, angry at my dad. He hadn't come right out and said it, but I knew that was where we were headed. There had been more than a few, what did that feel like for yous? And how do you feel about that nows in our most recent sessions? These standards from the therapy playbook used to make me want to run straight out his door because I was not prepared to talk about how I'd really felt then or how I really felt now. I'd gotten used to these questions though, and I was usually willing to answer them honestly. Except when it came to admitting I was angry at my dad. I didn't feel ready to do that. I was also not completely convinced that I had a right to be angry. Among my earliest memories of my father is this. He's coming through the front door of our house on 64 Centennial Drive in Moncton, New Brunswick. 
It's already dark outside, and a cold rain patters against the windows. He's missed dinner because of an emergency that kept him late at the hospital, and a plate with a heaping portion of the chicken casserole topped with cornflakes that Mum served the boys and me for dinner is warming in the oven under a layer of tinfoil. From where I'm perched, playing with my Barbies on the hallway's carpeted floor at the top of the stairs, I see him step into the tiled entryway and brush the damp off of his navy trench coat. The slope of his shoulders and the creases in his forehead betray his exhaustion. He carries his boxy rectangular briefcase in his left hand. Inside the hard-sided case, I know there are cream-colored file folders with papers about his patients. Charts, he calls them, when I ask what he's doing on the days he sits at his desk and, in a low voice using words I don't understand, talks into the small, black, handheld recorder holding tiny cassette tapes. For a slight moment after he walks in, Dad stands without moving, his gaze trained forward. I have a feeling that he's not really looking at anything. He pulls in a deep breath of air and blows it out again in a long sigh. Hi, Daddy, I say, peeking my face through the staircase's metal railing. His eyes turn upward and a smile lights his face, erasing the tired lines. Hi, Melanie Joybells, he says, and releases his grip on the briefcase, pushing it into the corner by the door. I abandon my Barbies in a jumbled heap and dash down the stairs into his outstretched arms, feeling the wet from the rain on my cheeks. How was your day? he asks, kicking off his dress shoes and unbuttoning his overcoat. I launch into an animated account of how Madame Arsenault, my first grade teacher, read us a story that day totally in French, and I'd understood almost every word. It was about this brother and sister named Remy and Aline, and they were going to their first birthday party, I tell him as we walk toward the kitchen, my arms still stretched around his waist. I often replay this memory and that pause in the scene when my father stood still, looking nowhere, before setting down his briefcase. What I understand now is that a shift was taking place, a moment of transition. On the other side of our front door, my father was Dr. Messenger, the thoracic surgeon who'd spent his day in an operating room, removing tumors from lungs, repairing traumatic injuries, and doing the intricate work of mending valves and vessels in people's chest cavities. The doctor, who had likely that day delivered the terrible diagnosis of cancer to numerous patients. The practitioner who'd inhabited a world of high stress and unrelenting pressure. On this side of the door, though, he was dad, to be dad, he had to put down the events of his day, put down his briefcase full of charts detailing prognoses and treatment plans and surgical outcomes and leave it in the entryway. He couldn't carry its weight with him into the world of our family. My father knew how to compartmentalize his emotions, set them aside to focus on what was in front of him. I don't know if his brilliant scientific mind was already wired that way or whether he learned the skill when he went to medical school and was trained in the art of, quote, professional detachment to help him cope with the distressing waves of fear, self-doubt, grief, and pain that inevitably accompany dealing with life and death situations every day. I don't know if the ability was already established long before then from his childhood living in the shadow of the Baptist tradition in which biblical directives to fear not, 
to be slow to anger and to not let your hearts be troubled might have mistakenly told him displays of emotion were sinful. What I do know is that my father's practice of coping with hard emotions became the gold standard for our family, a standard that remains intact today, close to 25 years after his death. Don't dwell, don't look back, let it go, and just keep moving forward. I've spent my entire life trying and always failing to meet this standard. Unlike my father, and maybe my mother and my brothers, I'm not wired to put the hard things down, to let them go. I gather them all, clutching them tightly to my chest. How was it fair for me to be angry with dad because of my own inability to conform? I decided to risk taking a step closer though with Dr. B. Did I ever tell you that when my parents were writing their book in those last two years before dad died, he asked each of us kids to write down our thoughts about what it had been like for us to deal with his illness? I asked Dr. B and stared at my hands, running my index finger along the jagged edge of a hangnail on my thumb. Dr. B tilted his head. I'm not sure you ever did, he said. I told him about the night when I was 21 how in the middle of dinner, my father had rested his fork on his plate, leaned back in his chair, and said to my brother David and me, I'd like you guys to write down a few thoughts about how you felt about me being sick that I could include in the book. I'm asking Michael and Mark to do it too. He'd picked up his fork again and resumed eating. I'd stopped chewing my own food. Stunned, I'd looked from my father's face to my mother's, but their expressions held no hints that they viewed this request as anything out of the ordinary. I'd tried not to choke as I swallowed the mashed potatoes that were becoming slimy on my tongue. Okay, I'd managed to respond, fighting to keep the tremor I felt throughout my body from finding its way into my voice. Later that night, I'd sat down at my desk, a ballpoint pen gripped in my hand, and stared at an empty, lined piece of paper. What the hell was I supposed to say? For the first time in nine years, Dad had asked me what living with the secret of his HIV status had been like, except he hadn't actually asked me to tell him in a way that would allow us to talk about it. He'd told me to write it down for him to read. I couldn't stop imagining him sitting alone at his own desk, the weight of my words and whatever words my brothers wrote too heavy in his hands. What would that do to him, I'd wondered, and for days, the ache in the question kept me from writing anything. Eventually, I said to Dr. B, I wrote a few things down because I knew if I didn't write something, he'd have to ask me again. What did you write? He asked. Not the truth. I said, my jaw tightened. His raised brows questioned my statement. I don't mean I lied, I said quickly. I was forever wondering what Dr. B was thinking, and despite his ongoing reassurance that I was allowed to say anything to him, I had this very real fear that he might think badly of me. I wrote about true experiences, true moments, but I chose my words carefully. I told him I'd written some brief snapshots that touched on particular incidents when my understanding of AIDS had broadened or my recognition of how it impacted some of our family interactions had been clear. I wrote about my parents' suffering and their ongoing courage as they faced the unknowns of the disease together. I just didn't write how it really felt to be living with the secret, the uncertainty, how painful it really was, how lonely I felt, how confused and frightened.
Why not? I looked at him and said, we'd never talked about those things. And here he was asking us to write it down and give it to him. How could I do that? Throw all those feelings at him on a scrap of paper. It must have been devastating for him to read the things we wrote. He didn't talk about it after you gave him what you'd written, Dr. B asked. No. A bitter taste filled my mouth as I recounted how I'd slipped quietly into the basement den that housed Dad's oak computer desk and hesitantly deposited next to his keyboard the five handwritten pages that had taken me over four hours to finish. In the weeks that followed, he hadn't said a word about them, and I hadn't asked. I had no idea what he'd done with the pages until the first time I read a printed manuscript of the book a few months later and came to the chapter titled, Reflections, Dad Has AIDS. There, positioned among excerpts written by my brothers, were neatly typed paragraphs that quoted my words from those handwritten pages. Here's what I'd written. I had been feeling at odds with Dad for a number of things. One day, after a particularly heated confrontation, I remember Mum turning to me and saying, Don't you realize that he just wants to be sure you are all okay because he knows he may not be around to see the final product? Finally, I understood what had been happening around me for so long. And for the first time, I understood my parents' pain because I felt it too. There were individuals on campus who somehow had heard through the grapevine about my dad. I felt violated, in a sense, because these were people with whom I was barely acquainted, but who somehow knew my most intimate secret. In a situation that could have torn them apart, Mom and Dad's love for each other has gotten stronger. I watch them take advantage of every moment they have together. There are times when I see Mom's grief and feel physically sick at the loss she has yet to face. These are emotions for which my Christian faith has largely been unable to provide solace. In their own personal accounts, my brothers had detailed moments and experiences when they'd had to cope with the grief and uncertainty of Dad's illness. Things that we'd never talked about before. I'd instinctually known that we'd never talk about them after, either. What they wrote was, I still remember the evening that we sat down in the family room and Dad told us about the infected blood transfusion. A sense of numbness descended over us all. Even eight years later, that feeling has never really disappeared. It is tempting, and true, to say that we have been blessed to have Dad alive and reasonably healthy for nine full years, but they have been years lived day to day. Sometimes the specter of disaster is more difficult to deal with than if it were confirmed reality. I try not to dwell on Dad being sick all of the time. There are times when I won't think of it at all. I'll just sort of let it slide into the shadows and go on with my life. Other times it's on my mind a lot. My father had simply prefaced the chapter with, The illness of a family member creates suffering for all other family members. The extent of that suffering for each of our children is difficult to gauge. It's not a subject we talk about often. It wasn't a subject we talked about ever, I told Dr. B. I untangled my fingers and wrapped my arms around my body, trying to contain the rush of feelings spreading through me. Dr. B knew my body language, knew when to adjust our course enough to give me a reprieve from emotions that felt too big. He leaned back, quiet for a minute, 
clasping and unclasping the silver watch on his wrist before he launched into an unexpected personal story. In the days after my mother died, my brother and sister and I decided to go through some of her things while we were all still together in Maine organizing rooms, making plans for eventually clearing out the house. I opened a drawer in one of her bureaus and found stacks of her journals, full of stories and important events from her life. He paused, and a shadow of grief crossed his features. I picked up one of the journals on top and read the date, 2010, the year after my father died. I opened to the first page. She'd titled it, The Year of My Loneliness. Dr. B's voice took on a tenor of sadness as he described how the journal chronicled his mother's intense anguish in the wake of losing her husband of over 50 years. His eyes brimmed with tears. It broke my heart. I had no idea how much she was suffering. Tears gathered in my eyes, too. The portrait of this solitary woman letting her burden of sorrow seep from her pen to the page was so tender and so painful. I imagine you wish you could have helped her, I said softly. I do, he replied. But more than that, I wish she'd shared her sadness with us so we could have shared ours. He was giving me that pointed look of his. Then, he said, his voice soft too, we could have walked through the pain together. Thank you, Melanie. It's really beautiful. It's it's got so much in it here. And I guess one of my first questions that I have has to do with that anger towards your dad. Mm-hmm. Did that, did you, did you ever end up feeling anger at him? Yes. <laughs> I, think, uh-huh. I mean, anger is a hard word. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. I, I think what I used to feel like is, if I felt angry at him, then I must be blaming him. Mm. And one thing that I feel pretty strongly about is my parents were doing the best they could under really, really difficult circumstances. And they didn't know, you know, how difficult it was going to be on all of us and how long a journey it was going to be for us. And so I think they were doing what they thought was best and they so desperately wanted our lives to be quote unquote normal Mm -hmm. in the midst of this, you know, and I think they thought that this is what they were doing. But I, there are moments where I have felt angry at my dad in the sense that I have sometimes felt like the secret and the secret keeping was selfish on his part Mm. because he was so afraid of his own reputation and his own image. And so I think that's where some of that anger comes in. Right. And, and just, you know, wishing we could have talked about it. You know, why didn't we talk about it? Yeah. Yeah. And so the book, they decided to write a book and, you decided to write a book, you right. know? Yeah. And so when I saw that, I was like, wow. It was an interesting way for you all to kind of share without ever actually sharing. Right. Because you could only know what you thought about the situation, and they only knew what right. they thought about the situation. Um, I'm not finding my note here, but oh, here it is. <laughs> here it is. Books allow us into a slice 
of everyone's interiority, which is a word I've learned recently <laughs> in writing. <laughs> it's a good word. I love. Yeah. I know. You kind of want to use it a lot. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so you were getting a chance to learn who you were to him through this writing. I guess that's sort of my question is that in light of the anger or you got to see a slice of what he thought about you, but and you can understand that, but that doesn't necessarily diffuse the anger that you feel. I think that's part of that both and. It's like I'm angry, right. but I, of course I still get why they right. were going through what they went through, but I'm going through what I went through, you know? Right. Well, I mean, there's that complicated sense of, you know, when you're dealing with secrecy, there's never true authenticity, right? Mm -hmm. And then, but then there's also, you know, I fully, I mean, long before my dad was ill, I fully understood my role in my family. <laughs> and, right. you know, my father, my middle name is Joy. You saw in that uh, scene, my nickname was yes. Melanie Joy Bells. Right. I was the ambassador of Joy. Right. That was, right. that was my job. And I, and that's what my dad needed me to be. And I adored my dad. I was fully and completely willing to be that. Right. So I don't think it was that he was only looking at one thing, mm -hmm. right? I think it's the role I played. Right. I don't, right. my parents didn't know about the nights I laid awake, you know, in anguish and fear. Right. They didn't know everything that was in my head because I knew how to play the external role mm -hmm. of what, what I knew they needed from me. And I also think, you know, for them, a coping mechanism was to believe and to have to believe that we were all okay, you know, right. when they certainly were not. I mean, my father contemplated suicide multiple times and, right. you know, dealt with deep bouts of depression throughout that 10 year period. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think for them, they had to believe that we were okay, you know, right. and I, I think sometimes the resentment comes up in the they were both very, very smart people. They had to have known there was something beneath that facade, you know, and, right. and why didn't they do something about that? Yeah. And I, I think that that does speak to the understanding of what they were going through. But what about what you were going through? Right, right. I mean, I think that's the thing, yeah. you know, yeah. and I think that's kind of, you know, that's what this book is, right? <laughs> is, yes. You know, in, right. in case anybody wanted to know, here's what, I, yeah. <laughs> here's what was really going on. By the me, way, you know, yeah. by the way. And what's interesting, back to the fact that my parents wrote this book, right, right? You know, and I and I bring this up in the in the manuscript of my own book is what that does is it kind of establishes this official version of the story right. that you know, it's out there. This is what we all kind of have bought into as the story. And so, so much of my own writing process has kind of been unraveling that mm. official version right? and figuring out where I fit in that narrative and beyond that narrative. Right. I think, you know, I have not shared a lot of my writing with my brothers or with my mother. Mm. And I think in some ways they believe that I've just kind of taken my parents book and made myself a bigger character in the oh, story you know that's um, very interesting yeah, yeah because you know the the official story 
is a solid, solid right. story in our in our family dynamic. Wow. Well, God, that makes your manuscript even um, braver. Oh, thank you. <laughs> in my humble opinion, really. I mean, it's um, to sort of say, hey, I might have played this role in the family, but there was also other things going on beneath the surface. And that is the right. stuff that I think is hard to... Um, make those ripples when right. it's like, okay, here's who I am. Um, but not always, not always. Right. I, um, right. It's speak. about trying to, to yeah. speak authentically, you know, when you've been silenced right. by secrecy, there's such a deep desire of wanting to be authentic, you know, when you weren't allowed to be. And so part of that writing process for me is, to just be able to speak about this story as authentically as I can. That, by the way, I I have never heard authenticity sort of articulated that way before. And that silence, mm. I, I can't remember exactly what you said, silence mutes the authenticity. Right. Oh, I feel like I'm having a <laughs> light beam moment. moment yes. Yeah. Oh my. Do you? God. I mean, out of your own experience, do you find that you know that there's there's something about not speaking about that experience that then yeah. makes you feel like you haven't been authentic? Yeah, I think that's part of of that thing that I was even saying before about I write to know what I what I feel. I write to know right. what I think because not that I necessarily sort of have adhered to a certain version of who I am and who I was or who I should be or whatever, you know, who I am in my nuclear family structure. Right. Um, right. But I do think that part of what that struggle is, is a refusal to see the parts of me that don't seem right or pleasant or appropriate or, you know, like there's a very strong religious aspect to sure. my mother's worldview. And I think that when you don't accept the negative parts of someone as real or true parts of them, that is, that sort of like becomes defiantly my authenticity is like, right. I have been sick. I have been, you know, unhappy. I have been negative. Um, and it sort of turns me into this very grumpy, defiant person. <laughs> um, but yeah, but it, it's like, why do I feel like that that's this cloak of me that I have to put on all the more um, as I right. sort of discover it? So that's really, I, I'm not even sure I'm saying this exactly right, but that's a really big moment aha moment there about authenticity oh, well that's exciting yes but, thank yeah. you oh my god <laughs> can't wait to go back and listen to her <laughs> again so my other question about the book was was it at that dinner when your dad asked you to write something when you found out or how did you know they were writing the book or how how did that come about so they, to you yeah we knew that they were writing it and it was, you know, kind of this thing that we 
we tiptoed around, <laughs> you know, because uh-huh. it was like, yeah, it felt very precarious, you know, and it's right. interesting, you know, for me to think about like the kind of vulnerability, when I think about the vulnerability of writing my own story, yeah. it's really interesting for me to think about the vulnerability that my dad must have felt in mm. writing yeah. his story. Yeah. And, and even though my mother was writing it with him, yeah. you know, I think she also, we all recognized, like, it was like this very delicate little bird <laughs> that yeah. nobody wanted right. to like crush or, right. you know, right. because, so we didn't talk a lot about it. Mm-hmm. We knew it was happening. I mean, he did, he wasn't hiding the fact that he was doing it, but right. you know, yeah. I it became the unspoken, the, the, right. the thing in the room, the elephant in the room. Or exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I, and I think that, you know, I write about this in the book that, it was just like this tiny little spark of hope, you know, like Mm. if he writes this and then people know, and then, you know, we come out of this isolation, you know? And so there was a lot wrapped up in this, this writing process. Right. And freedom is sort of the other side of truth. Once we really get, if we can burst through that, that wall of silence, right? the idea of being free and not having to do all the tiptoeing or going around this big thing is like, oh, like the big let's all exhale moment. Right. But um, right. the other thing about them writing their, their own book, I imagine, as I was reading through your manuscript, is also the chance to really have their say to speak through the stigma of what you know your dad or your family feared would be said about him right. like is he right. gay because that's not appropriate and all all the well i um, think you know at the time there weren't very many other narratives about hiv aids right um out there no so there was kind of a very expected AIDS narrative and I think part of my dad's desire was to expand that narrative and recognize you know that there wasn't just one particular group that was being impacted by this disease despite the fact that that you know the gay community was monumentally um impacted impacted Right. But that I think for my dad, it was a desire to expand that narrative for for others to see as well. Right. And he was a doctor. So also that's let's broaden let's broaden what this is about. So that was my other. I mean, do you think that that was part of his intention as well? Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. I mean, I think I think, you know, he wanted to speak to his faith community about it. I think that he wanted to speak from, you know, a medical practitioner's standpoint. I think he wanted to speak as a heterosexual man coping with this disease. I, you know, there were many facets to his writing, his own narrative. There was just a desire on his part to be seen, I think. That was really the deeper issue for him. Yeah. 
And your mom is still around, right? She is. Yes. Yeah, so that was going to be my next question. <laughs> has she read your story? Is she has read only the pieces that have been published? So oh, okay. there have there have been some standalone pieces from it that have been published, yeah. but that is all that she has read at yeah. this point. And and. My initial thought of not having her read while I was in process was I didn't want a lot of, because yeah. I know my ability to bend to the yes, <laughs> to the, oh, to the that much. you don't have to explain right? that one to me, yeah, right. Like <laughs> I, you know, I didn't want too many voices in my head right telling me what the yes. story was I was trying to tell. So that was exactly. part of it. Yeah, and then I mean there are just some difficult parts that will be hard for my mother to read and relive. And I think there's a part of me that feels like unless this book is going to be published, it's not necessary to put her through mm. reliving some of those difficult moments. So there's a self-protective measure in there, yeah, there yeah. you know, but right. also wanting to protect her a little bit. Yeah. Have you had a chance to, to quote your, yourself here, walk through your pain together with her? No, <laughs> yeah. I say, you know, yeah. I, that yeah. makes it sound, you know, harsh. No, I, you know, my mom and my brothers as well have lived their journey through this story of we put that thing behind us, yeah. you know, and yeah. it's for them. And I, and I completely understand it. Not everybody wants to return to the hard place, right. you know, right. and, and so I am completely okay with the fact that they don't want to return to the hard place. I yeah. mean, I've even said, you know, we don't have to create a family book club to read my book. Right. You know? <laughs> it, it's right. completely optional. On so they knew part. you were working on it. They right. Just, they, yeah. they, oh, they right. all know I'm working on it. Right. Um, but, the, you know, the fact that there's been very little questioning about it right. also speaks to the, well, the greater yeah. culture of my family. Exactly. You know? exactly. So, you know, I found others outside of my family who have walked alongside me yeah. through this story. Right. And, and that's been good for me. Not long ago, I wrote an essay for an anthology. And it, it was about writing family stories. And it was called, isn't it their story too? Mm -hmm. And, and I kind of speak to this understanding that I've reached through this process of recognizing that you know, while I think I initially had this idea, like, if my book comes out and is published, and, you know, everybody reads it, we're going to just have this beautiful, like, mm. moment where, you know, my family looks at me and says, you know, now we finally get you. <laughs> we finally <laughs> understand you. Right. And I think I've had to kind of let that imagined scene go. Yeah. And recognize that, you know, it may not lead to that right. yeah. outcome. Yeah. But what the writing has already done for me in terms of helping me to cope and helping me to understand is enough, I think. And well, and that is, I think that that's part of the process of writing. I mean, it's, it's of writing it, it's of getting to that moment, it's of the consideration of what will happen with it when it gets to the point right. where I'm, you know, I'm looking for a publisher, it will be out there. And I will confess, and this is a part that I'll really confess is hard for me to even talk about um, right now before I'm completely finished with a manuscript that I'm working on. Um, right. And I don't know what it will change. And I guess 
the reason that we talk with the therapists and all that stuff is, you know, really the only person I can change is me. So that is part of the long, slow realization that comes. But, you know, it is certainly a changing process at each iteration of the process of writing, of rewriting, of just getting it out, getting it out of you first, and then putting it together. And then something like this, which, you know, I really believe that when we read our work out loud, that's even another level of experiencing it. Because I think sometimes it's not until I read some of my stuff out loud, the moment I start crying, I go, oh, I guess this is the the part that I was really upset about. This is a hard, this is a hard part of this story. Right, right. And you know, I, um, one of the writers that I interviewed for writing hard stories, his name is Gerald Walker. And he talks about and I'm paraphrasing here, but he says that, you know, writing his memoir, basically, like, saved his parents for him, in a sense, like, through the writing, he was able to find forgiveness for them that he wouldn't have had, Mm. had he not done the writing. And so, he sees that value. And I think what you're saying about, you know, the only, we can only control ourselves and the way we are changed by it. And, but I think part of that change is, you know, if we're approaching the story with a deep level of empathy, there's an understanding that emerges that helps us to see the people in our stories in different ways than maybe we had before. You know, I, I, yeah. I have previous drafts of this manuscript where I'm much more angry at my mother mm-hmm. than I am in the current, <laughs> the right, current iteration right. of it, yep. you know, and I think yeah. it, that was a working out process for me that I had to do that to kind of come to this place of deeper understanding about her experience and, and the aftermath in that too. So, well, that's, this sounds sarcastic, but like, congratulations. (laughs) I don't mean it in that way. It's like, that's so good. That's very, very significant. I mean, I was going to ask about your, your family standard of just moving forward. And I think that there's, I think that there are some people that that's just what they do, you know, they move forward, but some of us, and I will put myself in your camp. It's like, no, I, I can't move forward unless I'm looking backwards and trying to figure it all out. Like I'm the one going back with the microscope saying, what the hell was that? (laughs) You know? And Um, probably the rest of your family is grateful that it's you doing it and not them. (laughs) Right. And that's that's what I have to occasionally kind of say to myself, like, that's funny. While they may not understand why I'm doing it, Mm -hmm. I'm playing a role that they don't have to play. Well, that's that's very interesting. I like looking at it that way. I haven't really talked to them about it. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. So you haven't talked to them at all about about what you're writing. Not yet. Are you afraid? Yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 For a lot of different reasons. I really, I, I am a little bit worried about the, um, the influencing factor of, you know, like, okay, what happens when now I, if I know my mother knows I'm writing this about my, my experiences or my feelings about my childhood. Right. Um, But 
at the same time, I mean, the way that I feel about Christian science and she knows very well, you know, that I am not in there. There are no ideations about that. Um, but I do think it's the the sort of like, well, can't we all just move on? Right. Feeling right. of like, I I can't. I can't. I can't. I right. have to. I have to be the person who does look backwards to try and understand. And you're, you know, you're looking backwards to find a way to move on. And it's not moving away from the experience. You'll always take it with you in some form. But, you know, I, I often kind of liken what happened with me in terms of you know, my, my family story as, you know, it was kind of this, like the way I picture it is like this metal box I was dragging like by a chain attached to my leg. Like Mm. I was, and, and you know how, like, if you think about something like that, like it's digging deeper and deeper into the dirt of the road and like eventually like it just stopped. I couldn't keep going forward without going back and digging it out. Right. right? And, and so I think you're in that digging out process and hopefully in doing that, it enables you to start moving forward, you know? Exactly. Yeah. It's a hard process to go back and do, but it's, it's goes back to the question of why do you write? It's sort of like, I can't not do it. I just, I have to. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, Abigail Thomas, another writer that I interviewed, mm. she she says, you know, because it's scarier not to write. Yes. <laughs> you know, exactly. And, exactly. and that is such a true statement. Yeah. So here's my last, I guess, official question for you. Okay. Um, I always ask what was most daring, but what what was hardest for you to write? So I can, I can answer that a hundred percent because it was really among the last things that I wrote. It was hardest for me to go back to the actual scenes of my father dying. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was over this six day period of time and to kind of take myself back to those six days was the hardest thing for me to do. I mean, just the grief was so heavy in thinking about those days, but you know, those are the days that are, they're like movie film reels in my mind. You know, Mm -hmm. I remember every moment of those days and, you know, it's interesting because in a lot of the writing I did before that, I just kind of jumped over mm-hmm. part. Like I, right. I went from the almost dying part to then yeah. the dead part. Right. And, then, right. and there wasn't that, the, the dying. Right. And, you know, when you think about it for 10 years, we waited for the dying right. that, you right. know, again, at that time, there was no cocktail. There was no living with HIV. AIDS was a death sentence. And for us, it was just a matter of when. And so I wanted that not to be part of the story, you know, and I had to really kind of come to a place where I recognize like, along with me, the reader is also waiting for that. Yes. Part of the story. Yes, you know, absolutely. And I will say, I mean, that was um, brutal and gripping. And I mean, I really think you did a very, uh, I can't, you know, there's not a, the right adjective, but I felt there with you oh, thank through you. each moment and how 
hard that was. And and also, I will say, I'm no stranger to reading memoirs about difficult things. Um, and it, I, I'm not sure I can say other death scenes that I was aware of before. But I think that's something that one does tend to sort of gloss over because it's so difficult and so painful. And so you really, I mean, you really sat with him. We sat with you as that was happening. And it was, I mean, it was hard, um, but it was important. I mean, I, I did appreciate the intensity of that going through his death. And it's interesting as you say that to me now because also he he was a doctor. And right. one of the things that from his introduction to the sections that you read that each one of you and your siblings had put in, in your parents' book, I made a note in the column that said it really sounded so clinical like, the impact of an illness on a family member, you know, so there is this sort of formal distance from it, but it's almost like you're being true to his profession by giving, and and it was not clinical by any sense. I mean, it was very descriptive, but it was the emotional process of, of dying. So that was really, that was really something. Right. And, you know, as hard as my father's dying was, in many ways, it provided us with the space to take it in. You know, like mm-hmm. we, it wasn't a quick, right. brutal death. You know, right. it was, right. it was a long, slow death, yes. <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and um, there was something beautiful and terrible in it at the same time, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, Oh, well, it's a tough place to, (laughs) to, to end on, but I mean, but thank you so much for, for what you've written for, for your manuscript, which I genuinely hope is going to find a publisher that deserves to be out there. Um, oh, thank you. As well as writing hard stories. And I am so grateful to have met you and um, hope we keep chatting too. <laughs> oh, I hope so too. Thank you so much for having me and for giving attention to this story. And I will say to you that exactly what those writers said to me, you will get to the other side of this story and you will feel like you've created something that out of your experience that is meaningful and has value. Yeah. Well, thank you. That's very, very heartening words <laughs> to hear. And, and um, I feel in very good company to be part of, uh, of telling such stories, trying to write hard stories. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm grateful that you're doing this podcast, oh, too. Thank so. you. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much. Enjoyed having you on. Thanks, Michelle. Wow, what a conversation. Well, thank you for making it to the end of this episode. This month, I am trying something a little different for listeners who are in Maine or can easily get to the mid-coast of Maine. I'm encouraging you to go check out the Corner Bookshop in Bath, Maine, 
the first listener who shows up there and mentions Daring to Tell will get a free Daring to Tell prize package, which will include Melanie Brooks's book, Writing Hard Stories, and a free Flying Pig audio t-shirt and a CD of my husband Phil Rado's music. Even if you're not the first one to show up at the Corner Bookshop, anyone who visits in the month of April can get 20% off their purchase. Just one time. It is such a cozy little bookstore, and it is a transformative experience to go and browse through books side by side and not even know that maybe something there was calling out to you. Maybe you will see Krishna, who works there, when you go in. Say hello and say thank you for this very generous offer. I will put a link in for the Corner Bookshop in Bath, Maine, in the show notes. If you are so inclined, you can follow me on Twitter, where I am at Michelle Rado. Most of all, though, I do hope that you might sign up to get my monthly newsletter called Hit Pause. That is at my website, michellerado.com. Daring to Tell comes out the first Tuesday of every month. My newsletter comes out a couple weeks later where I share fault. more thoughts about that month's episode There's and a few other things I may be mulling over about writing in life. So please, like you sign up for that at michellesnado.com. Thank you, as always, for ground. making it all the way to the end of the episode. And taking thank you for daring to listen. It's like taking away the ground.